Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Democrats wrapped their national convention tonight with a speech from their presidential nominee, Joe Biden. Last night featured a searing speech from President Obama warning that Republicans and President Trump are trying to take away our democracy. And Kamala Harris introducing herself to the country as the first woman of color on a major party ticket. And Marisa, it has been... You know, an unconventional convention for sure, uh, with the roll call across America and uh, just some real, you know, innovative things, but also some awkward things at the same time. But let, let's talk about Kamala Harris's speech. Uh, it must be tough to give a speech like that in mm-hmm. front of essentially 12 people who are sitting there from the press corps. Not <laughs> and nobody, I'm not <laughs> clapping for sure. Um, what did you think? How'd she do? So I think she did really well. I mean, look, this is a tough thing. To your point, she's in an empty room. Uh, room that looks like a smaller version of the arena they had hoped to be filling in Milwaukee. She came on the heels of President Obama, who really kind of came out swinging in a way that he really never has even in the course of his career generally. I mean, I think this was one of the most sort of pointed speeches we've seen. Um, And I think Harris's job was largely to, you know, to, to introduce herself to Americans. We know her so well here in California, but I think in most other places, folks don't. And I think she did a good job. I think we could have seen maybe even more about her family. But, you know, Scott, we've been watching her a long time. She is a prosecutor. She has not always been super comfortable talking about her personal story in the same way. And I think that she really did show a different side of herself. And and I thought it was powerful. And I think the parts about her family and linking that to what we're seeing with COVID and Black Lives Matter and the, the structural racism in this country, I, I thought it worked. Yeah, I thought the, the bio uh, sort of video before with her uh, stepkids and her sister Maya. I thought that worked really well. And, you know, it. I think it, just hearing her talk about Bo Biden, uh, mm-hmm. Joe Biden's son, I mean, obviously they had a, a good relationship. And, you know, those were the moments I felt like she almost, even though she was probably reading the prompter, it seemed like it was really genuine for her. It was heartfelt, which, uh, you know, she looks good when she's, when she's really, you know, saying something that she's really kind of feeling warm about herself. And she clearly has good memories of him. Yeah, I thought there was like, to the way the speech was written, I, I don't know if she was involved or if it was just a speechwriter who really understands the the mannerisms and the way she talks. I mean, clearly it was a scripted speech, but there were these moments that did feel very natural. And I think, um, you know, again, this is her kind of first opportunity to really roll herself out and, and show people who she is. And what I thought was interesting is you can see the way the campaign is really setting this up to be a true ticket. I mean, I can't remember hearing this much about Tim Kaine for years. 
years ago with Hillary Clinton being nominated. It was all about her and the glass ceiling that she hoped to break. And I think with Kamala, you heard, you know, Hillary Clinton talk about her empathy when a staffer, um, Tyrone Gale, was was battling cancer and, and ultimately died. You heard Nancy Pelosi talking about what she means to everybody. They really brought her in as a key part of this. They did. And, you know, this is such a different circumstance, if you think about it, from the two previous women who have been vice presidential candidates. I mean, Geraldine Ferraro was, you know, obviously the first, but I don't think anyone really thought that ticket was going to beat Ronald Reagan, who was pretty popular at that point. Sarah Palin was a Hail Mary pass uh, from John McCain, and she really kind of overshadowed him in ways, and then it all got weird with the Katie Couric interview (laughs) and magazines and and all that stuff, everything, yeah. But this this is for real in the sense that they have a very good chance of winning right now as we sit here. And, uh, you know, it is, we could very well be looking at the next vice president. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, the 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 other Californian we thought we were going to hear from tonight, Scott, is Governor, Governor Gavin Newsom. Newsom. And now it seems like it's a little up in the air. Yeah. And I guess that makes sense. I mean, there hasn't been really much mention uh, at all during the convention of what's happening in California with the wildfires. Uh, and Gavin Newsom had a plum speaking assignment. Uh, I think it was going to be right before or close to before uh, Joe Biden. And uh, his team just decided it wasn't appropriate. I don't know what the uh, the feel of that was going to be, probably very ce- celebratory. And given the wildfires and the heat wave and not to mention the pandemic, I think his people just felt that wasn't appropriate. Alex Padilla, the secretary of state, will be filling in. Uh, for him, very different uh, kind of presence, I think, than Gavin Newsom. Yes. <laughs> um, but I'm sure he can, you know, he can certainly talk about voting. <laughs> That's what he talks about best. <laughs> well, and in a way, I mean, he, I think he is still or was just head of, you know, the National Democratic uh, Secretary of State. They, obviously, the question of voter access, the ability for people to get to the polls or get their ballots in, you know, Democrats have really tried to hit this hard this week, talking about the attacks on the Postal Service, trying to explain to people, you know, I mean, the first thing that happened on Wednesday night was Kamala Harris coming on kind of unexpectedly and saying, hey, if you text this number, we'll help you make sure you get, you know, your vote in and counted. And, and I do think that that um, is something that Padilla will be able to speak to. Absolutely. And of course, uh, Padilla has been long mentioned as a possible successor, either to Dianne Feinstein or perhaps to Kamala Harris. So he'll get a a bit of a tryout tonight as well. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, one of the Democratic campaign strategists who helped pull off this very unconventional convention, Oakland's own Adisu DeMessi. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit Donate. 
www.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And our guest today ran Cory Booker's campaign for president. And before that, Gavin Newsom's campaign for governor. Oakland's own Adisu DeMessi, welcome to Political Breakdown. Welcome back. I should say this is your third appearance, a three-peat. I mean, I, I, I am very honored to, to <laughs> guys, to say the least. And good to be with you guys, even from afar. Yeah, it's we a are, record. It's it is a record. a record. It is a record. Sure. So, yeah. all right. Yeah, well, let's start with Tuesday night. I want a fourth one, so I'm all, <laughs> all right, we'll work on it. Well, let's let's start with Tuesday night's roll call vote across the country, uh, really uh, around the world. Fifty-five places around the you know, obviously the fifty states, DC, and other parts of the world. How did that come together? It was really stunning. Uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of work. I'll tell you that much. Uh, it was a, a huge team. I have to give a shout out to Hannah Edwards, who was the uh, lead advanced producer on all of it, but um, a, a ton of people from across the country literally recording, and some of them live, 57 different pieces of content sort of showcasing the the best of America uh, in, in terms of human beings, in terms of locations, you name it. But it was a massive undertaking. And, and one thing that, you know, isn't clear uh, from the recording itself is that uh, the voting, the actual voting, delegate voting, didn't end until Saturday. Uh, and so what you saw on Tuesday night, most of it happened Sunday and Monday, putting all of that together. We had a few live shots on, on Tuesday as well. So it was, uh, it was a big, big logistical challenge, message challenge, political challenge, you name it. But I think it came off beautifully and showed the best of America. How did you decide which ones to do live? Um, a sort of a combination. We wanted to, a combination of a lot of things. Uh, uh, states that we wanted to highlight, obviously, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Florida, we did uh, uh, we did live. And then a few messages we wanted to carry, uh, Texas uh, and what had happened in El Paso, the hate crime against Latinos. We wanted to, to make sure that that got a moment. It deserved Tennessee. We took live because uh, Tuesday was the 100th anniversary of the uh, ratification of the 19th Amendment. And Tennessee was the state that put it over the top. So it was a, a, a Delaware was obvious. Pennsylvania, we went live because Joe Biden's we went live from Joe Biden's childhood home in Scranton. So a little bit of message, a little bit of politics, a, a little bit of everything went into it. And I think it it came off without a hitch. and People liked it. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it's more successful than obviously it's exciting to be on the convention floor when something like that happens. But for the audience at home, it was a much sort of cleaner and 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 broader view of what these delegates really look like. Can you talk about like getting the phone call asking you to do this? And how did you guys start talking about this um, when it became clear that it was going to have to be almost all virtual? Yeah, when I start. So when I got the call from Jen O'Malley Dillon in it was early May. Uh, the the campaign and the convention committee had already decided to move the convention back a month. This was ob- we were obviously a couple months into the pandemic at that point. Um, and but we thought at that point that by the time we got to now, we would be able to do a scaled back version of the convention, sort of in person, but with fewer people, socially distanced, et cetera, et cetera. And so that call i said okay i you know i get what this looks like uh at least in theory it's it's a convention light right uh but once i started in may and and over the course of the last few months we, it's changed basically every day and and unfortunately scaled back in terms of what the presence in milwaukee would be but the key thing i will say to everybody listening is 
I think this was, I know this was the right decision starting from the vice president on down and Jen at the campaign to, to do this because we took, we basically had a public health check-in every day with our folks on the campaign, doctors in Milwaukee, public health officials in Milwaukee, political leaders in, in Wisconsin to, to decide how much to sort of go virtual versus do in person. And ultimately at the be beginning of August, a couple of weeks ago, we made the decision to, to go largely full virtual, but, um, it was the, the initial call was uh, I had one idea in mind about what this week would look like. And uh, what you've seen was not that uh, <laughs> we, we changed it pretty significantly over the course of three months. And I think I've done I know we've done the right thing for public health and I think produced a good show as well. Well, one moving piece, of course, was who the running mate was going to be. And you, we didn't know till a little over a week ago that it was going to be Kamala Harris. And at first, it seemed like they would be in Milwaukee, whoever it was, before he announced who it was. And then they decided to keep him in Delaware. Just talk about that, you know, uncertainty of who the running mate would be. And then it turns out it's somebody right, who, you know, born in Oakland, somebody you yeah. know very well, Kamala Harris. So, you know, talk about that. Yeah. So we had contingency plans. Uh <laughs> for basically every possible running mate. Most of them were were sort of put into the program, uh, you know, weeks, months ago. We knew we wanted them to speak regardless of if they were selected or not, but we had essentially a domino uh, situation that was gonna change the entire program depending on who it was, whether it was Governor Whitmer or Senator Harris or, or whoever. And so um, every day that went by in August, I was, you know, my heart was stopping. I was just like, just like everybody else, I was like, I want to know, you know, let's, let's, let's go, uh, both because I wanted to know, but also because it had a significant effect on what the program would look like uh, and, and so forth. And so when we found out, what was it, last Tuesday, last Wednesday, I found out with everybody else, just to be clear, uh, I was not involved, uh, but obviously ecstatic about the, the decision. And we did a pretty dramatic uh, uh, program shift to, to sort of reflect um, uh, where Senator Harris would speak and obviously where other folks would speak, um, uh, you know, respond to, responsive to that. So um, as I said before, it, it, this thing has changed literally every day uh, for the last 90 plus that I've been a part of it. And it's been quite a ride. So talk about the decision to use celebrities as sort of the MCs of these events. And like, how did you guys go about finding um, these largely women? Like, did you reach out? Did you put a call on Twitter? Entirely. Say, hey. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, I mean, a lot we did outreach from the campaign to potential uh, uh, hosts. We knew we wanted you needed somebody to hold the the show together. It was one of the first decisions we 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 made in a lot of ways. Well, the very first one when I started was to move out of the Pfizer Center uh, arena in Milwaukee to the smaller Wisconsin Center, which we ended up uh, now having a much smaller presence in. But the second one was to shorten the program, sort of turn it more into a, a television focused TV show, uh, and we knew we needed to, to hold that show together. We needed a host and somebody who could, who had experience doing this. So it wasn't really about the celebrity. Uh, I know that sounds, you know, that's easy for me to say, and you probably don't believe me, but it was more <laughs> about who can carry uh, the show and who can do this. And the women that we have doing it, I think, I know uh, the three at least that have done it so far have been fantastic. And, uh, you know, they're able to sort of thread the message needle and thread the needle and keep the viewers at home engaged as we transition between segments in a way that uh, is a little different than what you'd be doing if we were all in person in Milwaukee. You, of course, at ECU managed uh, Gavin Newsom's campaign for governor in 2018. You also worked on Cory Booker's presidential run. How does, you know, what you're doing here, how does it compare with what you've had to do in the past as a campaign strategist? It's 
totally different. It's actually why I decided to do it. You know, I was pretty exhausted after running Corey's campaign and, Ka and Gavin's campaign back to back. I basically was on the campaign trail for three and a half years straight uh, or two and a half years straight. And so uh, it took some time off, but uh, in the, in the spring, some intentional and some pandemic induced. Uh, but then when I got the call from Jen in May, I realized it was a unique um, new skill set, honestly, for me to deliver, uh, to, to develop, to um, help produce a convention and ultimately what ended up being a, a television show as well. And so it has, it is extremely different from anything I've ever done before, but I'm happy I got a crash course in it. And the one thing that's the same is there's a lot of political, obviously that we're not producing a pure entertainment show. We're trying to, to do politics, which is communicate a message to, you know, persuadable voters and to base voters. And that is the same, but basically everything else after that has been, has been pretty new to me. So talk about what is the purpose of this? I mean, obviously, it's a very different event, not, you know, normally the delegates come, it's kind of a payoff for the party faithful, they get to come and get excited. Um, this is obviously, in some ways, probably better for communicating to a broader audience. Um, but I mean, is this about exciting the base? Is it about persuadables? Is it a little of both? Like, how are you guys viewing the the what what does success look like? I think it it is definitely a bit of both. I think, um, the, the format does allow you to be more um, precise with it, I think. And the shorter, uh, the shorter timeline, actually, it's a challenge, obviously, because you can't say everything you want to say. You can't give everybody the platform you want, um, uh, you want to give. But it, it allows it to be a little tighter and deliver the message a little crisper. And the shorter speeches and shorter segments in general, I think people would agree over these last three nights has been, um, we've, we've been able to do that. But we are trying to sort of talk to everybody. That's the theme of the convention is uniting America. And I think you've seen what we're trying to do here, which is the, from, the, from the left of the Democratic Party to even some Republicans with whom people like me and people like Joe Biden d disagree 90% of the time. Um, nevertheless, we are united in this goal to defeat Donald Trump and put some decency and honesty back in the White House. And so um, that's a message that appeals to, I hope, everybody. And that brings in the voices of everybody from the base to Republicans. And and um, we've done that in word and I think in, in form and function as well. And so uh, this was not a this was not a convention for the base. It wasn't a convention for a swing voter either. It was sort of a convention for everybody across America. And and the format uh, lended itself to that. You mentioned that the uh, speeches are much tighter. Who got to tell AOC that she got one minute only? <laughs> one minute was a long so <laughs> Right? That, I, I think by the time that, I think she ended up with 90 seconds. Uh, but like, it was hard, I will say, not, uh, not to hide the ball, to sort of tell folks, well, guess what, you get two minutes, when typically a lot of these remarks are, you know, five minutes from the stage. The, the program in 2016, we looked back, was 24 hours. Uh, the first night alone, Monday the, of the convention in 2016, was 3 to 11, 8, eight hours. Okay. We have eight hours for the entire week. Um, we could have put on more, but frankly, it would have been worse because the production value, would have, it would have been too hard logistically to do more. It was hard enough to do this. Uh, and, and, and it would have, I think, been less compelling for the reasons I just talked about before. But it was pretty tough to sort of communicate that without people having a visualization like we did it, living it every day about what two minutes, three minutes, 90 seconds felt like. I think now people get that like it wasn't a snub or a, um, or anything more than sort of fitting the format as it is, which is shorter, 
direct to camera, keep people's attention, keep moving kind of segments. And um, it was it was hard in, in July to sort of make those calls, uh, no doubt. But I think now in August, people see we've done what's best for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and best for the party and the convention. And you haven't actually like had to cut anybody off of Zoom the way they sometimes cut the mics at like the Academy Awards. So that's good, right? <laughs> With music. Nothing has been cut yet. Uh, and some, we've had a lot of live elements, right? So um, the, you know, President Obama and, and Senator Harris were live. Uh, uh, Bernie Sanders was live on Monday. So people are keeping the time, uh, uh, even though some of the shorter segments like Sally Yates was live and Chuck Schumer. So uh, we've been able to nevertheless get close to hitting the eight o'clock Pacific, you know, end time every day, which is pretty hard when you're running a program live and uh, <laughs> you can't Sandman pull somebody off the stage like at the Apollo. Uh, but so that, I suppose. <laughs> All right. Adisu Demesi running the convention. Good luck. Uh, and, uh, you know, we hope uh, hope none of your nightmares come true on Thursday night. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. I look forward <laughs> to coming on a fourth time. Number four. All right. Yep. <laughs> four beat. Thanks, as you'd say. <laughs> All right. So joining us now is a man who co-chaired Bernie Sanders' national campaign. He now co-chairs California's delegation to the DNC, South Bay Congressman Ro Khanna. Congressman, welcome back to The Breakdown. Great to be back on. Well, let's start, if we could, we want to get to politics, of course, but I uh, wanted to ask uh, how your district is doing with these wildfires. I know there have been some ev evacuations near and probably in your district. Well, it's been a tough time. Uh, I know a couple people who've had to uh, evacuate uh, uh, from uh, their places. Uh, fortunately, no one I know has been uh, injured, uh, but we're monitoring the situation. We have uh, three people as assigned to field any phone calls and uh, certainly people should call us uh, or uh, and we'll we'll do whatever we can to, to help. Such a tough time right now in California. Um, but let's get back to the convention, obviously taking up a lot of uh, your attention and others this week. Let's talk about, I mean, Scott mentioned you uh, co-chaired the Bernie Sanders campaign. There's obviously a lot of progressives who are not super pleased um, with this ticket. Let's start with the DNC platform, though. You actually ended up voting against it. It did not support Medicare for all. Talk about that calculation. Why are you doing that? And then how do you still make the case for Joe Biden, um, you know, when you are saying, I I'm not really on board with everything the party is putting out there right now? In the midst of a pandemic where millions of people are losing their jobs, they shouldn't lose their health care. To me, that is just such a basic principle. Uh, your worth as a human being to be able to get medical care shouldn't be dependent on what job you have. And Medicare for All has been part of our platform since Harry Truman. It was stripped in 1980 with the Reagan revolution. This is the time to say that is the right policy and the aspiration of the Democratic Party. Now, Joe Biden is infinitely better than Donald Trump. I have no doubt that he will extend health care. I have no doubt that he would appoint people to the Supreme Court who would uphold Medicare for all, whereas Trump would move the court in a way that would strike down those policies for a generation. So uh, I'm 110 percent behind uh, Biden and Harris, and I respect his right to run on whatever platform he won on. But as a party, we should be for Medicare for all. Does that in all your position on the platform, does it reflect, um, you know, either a lack of enthusiasm or some of the splits that are being papered over right now within the party because there's a common enemy, Donald Trump? I don't think it reflects a lot, lack of enthusiasm because uh, fear uh, is a big motivator. I mean, we've seen in the past that people fear 
uh, the Trump's election or someone's election, that can get people out to the polls. And, that, and that's going to create uh, a tremendous amount of enthusiasm and, and, and turnout. Uh, I do think there are philosophical differences in the party, and that's healthy, and dissent is healthy, and it would be uh, wrong to, to paper over those. And But those differences can be aired and debated uh, once we win. <laughs> so we know that there were a lot of folks who had hoped for a more progressive running mate, someone maybe like Karen Bass, um, our obviously hometown or home, home state senator, uh, is on the ticket now. Um, we are hearing a lot of excitement, but I know that some supporters of Bernie Sanders and others um, are not maybe as excited. I'm just wondering what you made of her speech last night, if you feel like she quelled any of those fears and what kind of conversations you're having with somebody who obviously knows Kamala Harris uh, being a Californian. It was an inspiring speech, I think, especially as an Indian American, hearing her uh, talk about uh, her mother, Shyamala, and the impact uh, uh, she had on uh, Senator Harris and on uh, Senator Harris's sister, Maya. I think so many people uh, were inspired by her story, inspired that she could uh, stand there accepting a nomination for vice president. So most of the comments I've heard have been celebratory, celebratory not just for her, but for what her place on the vice presidential ticket means for our country. Well, let's talk a little bit about the broader convention. We saw a really powerful roll call for the delegates across the nation. Hilda Solis and Barbara Lee, the other co-chairs, announced the votes here in California. Um, did you want to join them? Why weren't you there? What, do you, what did you make of sort of that whole roll call? Well, I thought it was brilliantly done. I uh, was in Washington, D.C. for votes when they were uh, doing it, and I think Barbara was just coming back, so I didn't want to fly all the way back to L.A., but uh, otherwise I would have been happy to, uh, honored to join it. Uh, but I thought it was great to, to be uh, done in, in, in the state, and maybe they'll, that'll become a tradition going forward. You know, there's been, coming back to the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the actual convention in terms of speakers, there's been some criticism, as uh, Marisa kind of alluded to, that maybe there, you know, somebody like AOC uh, didn't get as much time as some would have liked the younger uh, up and coming members of the party. And then tonight, Mike Bloomberg is speaking uh, not long before, in fact, I think right before Joe Biden. What do you think of that? Is that appropriate? There are some who feel like because of, you know, his, uh, the NDAs, the non-disclosure agreements, that kind of thing, that, you know, maybe that's not the right person to have up there at that moment. Well, of course, it's Vice President Biden's decision. He won the primary. He gets to decide. And uh, I guess I would just say that the talent of a lot of these younger members isn't being fully used. Of uh, Jamal Bowman, uh, Corey Bush, Amandir Jones, uh, you mentioned AOC, Rashida Tlaib, uh, Katie Porter. I think there is some, they uh, not only have a, a way of speaking that connects with young progressives, uh, they also have the platforms on Instagram Live and on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and I, I, I think they could have had a bigger role at the convention for them. And my hope is that they'll engage them going forward uh, to really get the youth vote out. So let's talk about a, a, another big speech, which may have uh, inspired some young people, which is President Obama's speech. It was searing um, really an unprecedented critique from a, a president um, of his predecessor, especially this former president. Do you agree? I mean, it felt like what Obama was basically saying is America, you can have Trump or you can have democracy, but you can't have both. Well, I, I don't think it was quite that uh, stark. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a critique of Trump, but I, I think uh, knowing President Obama, he believes deeply in the American experiment and doesn't think one person is going to, to tear down 220 years by himself. But he was saying that the stakes are deeply high. 
I think what he was speaking to more, though, is the cynicism. And, and what he was, I think, saying is uh, cynicism has to be earned. And he was saying there are people who have sacrificed far more than uh, our generations of people who have, uh, like John Lewis, who have actually been beaten uh, and who had odds and obstacles far more daunting than even the ones we face. And yet they persevered with hope in, in democracy and that the product of that, as he so movingly shared, was uh, him his own ascension to the uh, to the Oval Office, uh, talking about a civil rights leader who went to jail on the day he was born. And so I think he was saying uh, our generation needs to do our part, that this is our challenge and not to be resigned to cynicism. Is it your sense that younger voters who you talk to are as concerned about the future of the country? I mean, the fundamental state of our democracy, as President Obama suggested. I think they are uh, as concerned about the state of uh, the world, the state of their lives, the state of uh, uh, different issues, but they have a greater skepticism of the democratic process than I think previous generations did. I mean, even uh, Dr. King and the civil rights movement and John Lewis, uh, they believed in the possibility of politics. They believed in the possibility of the courts uh, to ultimately uh, get justice. And the younger generation, I think, is more skeptical uh, of the system, more perhaps with Michelle Obama's view that uh, I want nothing to do with politics. And so I think what Obama was saying is don't give up on, on politics as a vehicle for bringing change. All right. Congressman Ro Khanna, thanks so much. A very busy day for you, I know. And we appreciate your taking time to talk with us. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinny Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can always find me tweeting. I'm on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter as well. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Stay well. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.